You're listening to TIP. Hey, 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 it's the big 3-0-0. During this episode, Stig and I simply talk about the current market conditions and the many challenging situations people are facing in the world today. Additionally, we really want to say thanks to all of our listeners out there. Your support and always being there for us is something we just can't even put into words. So cheers, and here's to the next 300 shows. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pish. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. And uh, boy... 300 stig 300 episodes is it's a little crazy to think about us sitting down and having these conversations 300 times <laughs> oh god yeah and what is like six years ago since we chatted and we we're like should we do a podcast how do you do that <laughs> and here we are there was a lot of unknowns because neither one of us have much technical skills when it comes to anything <laughs> like this but we figured it out and yeah, it's great to be here and we won't drone on about some of those stories too much. We'll hop into the episode, but pretty exciting for both of us to hit 300 episodes. If you would have told me that when we started, that we would have done 300 shows like this. Oh my God. All right. Let's go ahead and cover this first topic that we have. And we're just doing a current market update. We're just talking in general, the two of us here for episode 300, just pressing his stick kind of episode. But the first topic that Stig wanted to cover was corporate debt and the Fed. Yeah, so not a current mod condition episode without the Fed. <laughs> I guess that's what we're seeing right now. And, and almost like, how can we with everything that's been going on? I took a chance to read up on the Fed here the other day. And we always do that. We look at what they're doing. We clearly, we follow the news. But I kind of thought I wanted to go back to the very root of the Fed in the sense that what is the function of the Fed? And there's actually three very specific goals that Congress had mandated the Fed to do. And that is to maximize sustainable employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. And I sort of felt that was interesting to mention because I know that we tend to bash the Fed, and perhaps you will see a bit of that here in this episode. But I think it's also important to say that the Fed is not created to become the best possible system for value investors. No one's ever said that. Specifically about the Fed and stable prices, you know, it's designed to create inflation. And you might say it's the wrong objective to have, but I also think it's important that whenever you see all the things that the Feds are doing, and you're thinking, what is it doing to your portfolio? What does it do to whatever? It's more or less doing what it's been asked to do. And I think that's super important to understand because we might not agree with the Fed, but we need to navigate a world where the Fed plays such a big role. So I wanted to kick the episode off by talking about the objectives of the Fed. And then perhaps we can talk a bit more about, so what do we then do as value investors based on that? Now, so as Preston mentioned that before, I wanted to talk about corporate debt. And it's such an exciting topic to talk about. The market itself is huge, $10 trillion. And it has ballooned recently. This is a day and age of new all-time highs. Back in April, 
alone, there was $300 billion of new corporate debt issued. And again, that might not be too surprising because so many companies have issues with financing. But it is very interesting to see the incentives that these companies have perhaps doing it right now. I couldn't help but notice two billionaires that Preston and I are following and what they had to say. Jeff Gunlock was out early in the game and he's talked about how weak corporations are speculating on the Fed's action. Warren Buffett talks about the Fed moves could have extreme consequences. I kind of found that quote interesting too. Now, to talk a bit more about what is specifically happening right now, the Fed has teamed up with BlackRock to buy back corporate debt. And like we covered last time, this is both investment grade, but also some high yield bonds that they're looking to purchase. And one of the things, and that's because I'm such a nerd, one of the things that I enjoy reading is whenever the Fed are making a statement, and then, you know, it's sort of like up to us to like figure out what they mean by that. But they're saying that the size of the purchases would vary based on market conditions with a goal of reducing the deterioration of liquidity seen in March 2020 to levels that corresponds more closely to prevailing economic conditions. And I kind of felt that was a funny phrase because you can basically read into that what you want. But to me, it seems like we are just getting started. Let me just put it like that. But what I really wanted to talk about, especially for us as value investors, is it's hard to know for sure what happens when this plays out. But I think what I don't like is how you're messing up the capitalist system. And it sort of like goes back to the objective of the Fed, say maximizing sustainable employment. I think that there is a huge risk that you might be doing that in the short run, but not securing a good system in the long run. And let me just come up with a simple example of what I mean by that. Capitalism is a fantastic system because it has a really strong feedback loop. If we take the example of an ice cream store, it's very simple that if you don't sell good ice cream at a fair prices, you won't have any customers and you will just go out of business. That's capitalism and that is what has made American companies so great and able to compete on the global scene. You have competition where the best survives. Now, if we compare that to the situation with corporate debt, in a capitalist market, everyone can issue debt at any time. However, and this is the important thing, they can only issue debt at market prices. So if you don't have a sound business, you will either not have anyone who is willing to lend you money, or you will be forced to borrow money at such a high interest rate that you might or will likely fall on it unless you are very, very skilled. And yeah, these are the bonds that are typically referred to as junk bonds. But if we go back to the example of an ice cream store, let's imagine that you own that store and every day you have a person walking into the store buying all your ice cream, huge quantities. And the buyer doesn't care about the quality of the ice cream, nor does he care about the price because he has free access to money. Now, what would happen? Well, what would likely happen in a situation like that, you being the owner of the ice cream store, is that as a result, you will start to dilute the quality of the ice cream and you will stop having this positive feedback look where the best one survives and you become completely dependent on that buyer. Because if that wealthy buyer is not there, you don't have a business anymore. And I think that is what we're seeing right now. We're only seeing the very beginning of what could potentially erode some of the fundamentals behind a capitalist system. The Fed so far only deployed $100 billion. 
and they have pledged at least $2.6 trillion for this program. So to me, that's very concerning. If you look at the balance sheet just in general, you know, we were less than $4 trillion before COVID-19. You're already up more than $7 trillion. So that's sort of like my bleak way of uh, kicking off this episode 300. Yeah. So Stig, you know, when we're looking at the debt globally from a global level, because you were talking about the amount in the US, but I'm looking at it from a global scale because really the US Fed is servicing dollars at a global scale. And I think that when we look at all the social unrest that we're seeing around the world on a global scale, that's why you're seeing it so coordinated. And I use the word coordinated, meaning when you look at all these different countries, they're all having protests. They're all having social unrest. So you have to ask yourself, what's a common thread that would cause such a thing to occur? And for me, it's the money. And for me, it's the central banks that are controlling that supply of money. So just to throw out a number on the corporate debt globally, back in 2009, the number was $34 trillion. Today, it's at $51 trillion. And that's a 2019 number. So I'm assuming here in 2020, it's even way higher than that. Here's the issue that I have, right? When you talk about inflation, because what Stig was saying, their first thing is to create a stable economy through a stable, small amount of inflation. There, and I've talked about this on the show, I talk about this on Twitter all the time. I'm going to try to get into more detail on this idea of what is inflation. And if you're measuring inflation, the CPI bucket, right, which is items A through Z, and when you scope that and you say, these are the things that I'm going to measure in order to say what inflation is or isn't, opposed to every single thing in the economy, I think you get very skewed results. And so from the Fed's perspective, they're saying, we're adding all this money, but we're not getting any inflation. Now look at the CPI number. It's, it's abysmal, right? But you go back to economic theories and ideas and you read about these people who wrote extensively about money supply and central banking and what causes economies to fail. And what you can find fascinating is this Yardini organization publishes daily a report of the ever-growing total assets of major central banks. And so if I was going to tell you what I think the inflation of money And it's very important that we talk about the inflation of money and not the inflation slash deflation of price of particular items in the economy. Those are two very, very, very different things. Okay. So I am talking about the inflation of the money supply. If we look at this pre 2008 crisis to today, your number was like, slightly under a trillion dollars of assets sitting on the US Fed's balance sheet. Today, we're over 7 trillion. Okay, so it was like 0.8 or something like that and now we're at 7 trillion. So, whenever I look at that and I say, "Well, how much what inflation rate is that if we're looking at that being the inflation rate of the money supply?" What does that come out to be as a percent if I annualize that? going from 0.8 to a 7. Well, guess what? Over that period of time, that's a 22.9% inflation rate, right? That's massive. That's insane. So, and the reason why I want to focus on that number is because that money's going somewhere. 
It's not like it's just disappearing. The money is going somewhere. And guess where it's going? The money is going into stocks, bonds, real estate, hard assets, and they're getting bid higher and higher and higher in market capitalization. And when I say market capitalization, what I'm saying is those companies kick off earnings. And then the market says, oh, well, if it made $10 this past year, it's worth $100 because that gives me a 10% return if I buy it at a $100 price. That's a market capitalization, right? So when you're stuffing money into the economy at the tune of 22.9% annually since 2008, right? Since the end of 2008, guess what? It's going to inflate certain prices of certain things. Well, guess what? As stocks and bonds are not in your CPI bucket, folks. They're just not. It's that simple. It is that freaking simple. Right. So these things are getting bid in the market. So then the next question is, well, why is it going to stocks and bonds and real estate and things like that? Well, follow the money. If you started at the point of initiation of a new dollar of this inflationary 22.9% money supply, right? If you start at where that money is created and then inserted into the economy, the immediate insertion point for the last 10, 12 years, right, has been the bond market, period, period, the bond market. They take the freshly printed money, they step into the bond market, and they buy the, whatever bonds are on that market, and they put that cash into the system. And then that bidding of the bond market raises the price, drops the yield, And then if the owners of those bonds want to go and sell them on the market to then go buy stocks, they can go do that. But the fact of the matter is, is the money supply is growing at nearly 23% annually based on just a simple look at the balance sheet of the US Fed bank. Now, if you go and you look at some of the other central banks, they are also aggressively raising theirs as well. I could go back and do the calculation for all these other banks. And guess what? They're right there with the US Fed. So when you look at that on a global scale, I would tell you that I think the inflation rate of the money supply over the last 10 years globally is in excess of 20%. And you're not going to see any college professor, any economist talk about that number because they're hyper-focused on, I don't know why, but Well, I guess I do know why. They have an incentive to uh, not allow interest rates to go up because they fiscally can't afford it in pretty much any country around the world. That's probably the incentive. I think that that's the concern. And what's fascinating about all of it is these central banks are the things that Stig read off that they're trying to march towards in order to create stability. They have created stability over the last 80 years. They have done that. But the irony of all of it is if you control something for so long, for 80 years, maybe at the end of that, it actually creates the exact opposite of what they intended to do. It's almost like a parent who's trying to raise the perfect child. They create this stability in their life because they protect them from whatever. And they raise them for the first 18 years of their life. And then After that, the child has to move on. And that stability that the parent created was actually instability to their ability to actually step out into the real world and live in a real environment. And I think that that's kind of what we got going on right now. 
we have lived in this world where the central banks have stepped in, manipulated the market in order to protect and stabilize the market, only to create this world where businesses don't have a rainy day fund. Like the COVID hit and people stopped showing up to the businesses. Well, mass amounts of businesses failed within the first two weeks. They didn't have enough liquidity to even make it two weeks. And I think if you went in back into an environment that hadn't been manipulated for that many decades before all this kind of took place, you'd have businesses that could have lasted five months without another paycheck because they had a rainy day fund. They had a treasury of whatever on their balance sheet in order to withstand hardship. You're seeing that on a personal level that people have spent and spent and spent because they've been incentivized to spend because the money loses its value so quickly. And when that has been incentivized and people have no rainy day fund, well, they feel the pain immediately. All right. So the next thing that I want to go through is investing in international markets. So I know, Stig, you have some comments on this. So I'm going to throw it over to you. Last time, whenever we had one of those monthly my conditions discussion, I talked about how I was heavily exposed into US equities and how I wanted to diversify away from that. Not just because of market manipulation, just also that the US stock market in general was very expensive. And I've gotten quite a few responses on that, not just from people in the US who wanted to invest internationally, but also international listeners who were just interested because we all seem to have home biases one way or the other. And and actually, I found some interesting stats about our home bias. Typically, American retail portfolios would have between 70 and 90% of their portfolio in US equities. And that is considering that the US market cap is just above half of the global stock market. That being said, if we're using a global portfolio as a benchmark, the Americans are doing much better than the rest of the world in the sense that Canadians and Australians they have similar trend. They typically have around 60% of their portfolio in domestic stock, but their market cap are not more than 50%. It's like 3 and 2% of the global market cap. So we see a strong home bias that comes from us feeling that we are more familiar with the stocks more than necessarily because we've done a proper valuation of that. And so if we're looking at the S&P 500 right now, I think we're, what, 1% cheaper than it was before COVID-19, or at least just before our momentum tool turned red. And yes, the stock market is not the economy, and the economy is not the stock market. I know we keep saying that, we keep hearing that, but you know, it is a reflection of corporate profits, what the stock market is supposed to yield. And I'm thinking, well, we had COVID-19, we have all the social unrest that Preston talked about before. Knowing that the stock market was quite expensive before COVID-19 started, do we really feel that now we are around a fair valuation? I would say no. I mean, what we see now is it's an even more obscene valuation when compared to the underlying fundamentals. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, 
So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at ndtco.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's ndtco.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. Stig, I just want to add something in there when you're talking about valuation. It'd be like trying to measure something on your table with a ruler that's just constantly getting longer, right? So, or I think in in this situation, the ruler would be getting smaller, making you think that the size is getting bigger. So you're going up and you're looking at the piece of paper and you're saying, oh, well, it's 10 inches or 12 inches today. And then you come back tomorrow and the ruler got smaller and you're measuring that same piece of paper and now it's 16 inches today. That's effectively what you have going on in the market. So when you're thinking about valuations, people have to think in that lens of the thing that I'm measuring this with keeps changing every single day in a major way. I agree with that. And basically what you are referring to here, just to clarify, if ever, is that you see this debasement of money and you talked about the huge money flow coming in. So you might say, you know, S&P 500 trading at 3000 today. It's not necessarily as the S&P 500 trading at 3,000 at another point in time. It really comes back to also the earnings. And so whenever I talk about the evaluation here, because your point is definitely completely valid. Whenever I talk about the earnings, I'm not just talking about, well, you know, if we keep on seeing that influx of money, that would also be reflected in earnings, at least in the nominal numbers. But I'm also thinking, what do I expect will happen to those nominal numbers? Even if we look away from that inflation coming in, what do I expect that to happen? 
I don't necessarily think it looks like fantastic. And in that sense, I don't feel it justifies the valuation on the nominal numbers, the S&P 500 trading at 3,100 today. But going into the discussion here about diversification, the point I really want to drive home here is to figure out what we want to invest in. We need to put it in comparison to something else one way or the other. And so what most investors do is that they typically look at the whole market first, as I mentioned before, because that is what they feel most comfortable with, or they'll look at historical returns from various stock markets. And then they sort of tend to extrapolate those results. And the issue about that is that there's typically good reasons and good stories why you would do that. So just in the US, you would have NASDAQ that has outperformed the S&P 500. And if you look at some of the, the reasons for that, just Google it, or if you speak to people about it, you know, people can give you really good explanations why that's happening. Yeah, this is why Apple and Google and Amazon will outperform. And it all sounds good and well. But my argument is that all history would tell you if something has gone well for a long period of time, it's because there is an overstatement of that real underlying effects. So going into this episode, I looked at some of the major indexes over the past 10 years, just sort of like to prime the conversation. The S&P 500 has returned 11.7%. All international markets outside of the US, market-weighted has returned 3.2%. Emerging markets have returned 1.3%. Europe has performed 3.6%. And Nikkei, 5.8%. So... I kind of felt that was some interesting stats to look at. And so what I did then was you know, I looked at the valuations of the different markets and no surprise, you know, the US was very expensive because yeah, they had a really good run for a long period of time. And I looked at some of the research that's been conducted and Lynn Alden did some very interesting research on this and we'll interview her in a few weeks. But she had been conducting some research specifically based on Sheila's PE. And she also looked into some of the research that Doc Short, which is another economist that Preston and I follow, have been conducting too. And we'll make sure to link to this in the show notes. It's a very interesting write-up she did of that. And the evidence is very clear because not just in the US can we see that if we have a high Sheila PE ratio, it would lead to subpar returns in the following decade. But it's evident throughout all international markets that she looked into. The only exceptions were Denmark and Sweden, but that was for different, very, very different reasons. But we see that across the world. And so that would be my word of caution as you were thinking about diversifying, like don't look too much at past performance. And I wanted to be a bit more hands-on with some of the different strategies you can apply if you want to diversify. The first strategy is very, very simple. You can go in and buy something like Vanguard's ETF VT. It's a very cheap ETF, 0.08 in expense ratio. It's very cheap. Now, keep in mind that you are 57% invested in the US if you buy a global ETF. So if you already have a bunch of individual stock picks or you have the S&P 500 in your portfolio, you're not diversifying inequities as much as it seems. So if you are heavily exposed in the US, one thing you can do is to invest in all international markets and Vanguard thought of that too. And again, the cost of that is 8 basis point or 0.08%. And I just want to clarify, I don't have any affiliation with Vanguard, but the only reason why I typically bring up those tickers is because they have a good track record of low cost and they're good at tracking indexes as well. And so that's a way to do it. And if you did that, you would be 4% in Europe, 23% in emerging markets, almost 30% Pacific. So that's a way to go about it, which is 
not as specific. Of course, it, you don't go in and target which markets you think are the best, but it's a way to diversify away from the US. So alternatively, this is sort of like the theoretical, the optimal way to do it, but it's also a tricky method. That is that you can make valuation of each international market and then allocate your funds to the cheapest market. Generally, I do not recommend that you do individual stock picks unless you really know the market well, but rather that you buy an index, for instance, for India, Australia, whatever you find the most value. So that approach has a lot of upside. I definitely also have some downside that I like to talk about, but it has clearly more upside in the sense that you don't get the average. You can go and like pick and choose. If you really believe in that evidence in terms of, you know, how can we historically see which countries perform better based on a, say, CLA PE ratio? Now, remember that a stock market in a specific country is nothing more than the aggregated valuations. So just like whenever we know that for individual stock picks, if they're priced at an expensive ratio, they won't perform as well. It will be the same for that specific stock market since it's just a aggregate of that and you'll see some mean version because of that. And then I want to say that as you're looking at some of those countries that looks like they're trading at a very attractive level, keep in mind that the risk you take are different than if you invest in Europe and you invest in the US because it's a global reserve currency. Now, that's not the same as saying that you don't have any issues in Europe and the US. You know, We're going to have a segment here later about Europe and we just talked about what's happening in the US. There are major problems. But if you look at some of the list of the quote-unquote, most appealing international countries like Russia or Turkey, not only will you have a lot of political risk, you will also have a currency risk that those currencies just might go to zero. Like you would see crazy inflation. So that's also one of the reasons why you see a premium whenever you're looking broadly across all stocks. So I have a different way of looking at international investing, and it's specific to the last 10 years. Before everything changed in 2008, I would have done exactly kind of the way Stig was describing it. But more recently, my thesis is that central banks are manipulating everything and that they're driving the prices of securities up. So let me give you an example. Back in 2015, you had the European Central Bank step in and conduct massive amounts of quantitative easing. They did this from kind of the start of maybe the end of the first quarter of 2015 up until 2018. Well, during that period of time, that same period of time when the ECB was aggressively expanding their balance sheet, they went from like 2.5 trillion on their balance sheet clear up to like 5.7 or somewhere in those ballparks, right? So it was practically 100% expansion of their money supply over that duration of time from 2015 to 2018. So you have to think of it in relative terms to, well, what are all the other central banks in the world doing? Well, in the US, the balance sheet through that same period of time actually went down. If you pull up the charts and you look at the expansion of the balance sheet on the Fed's part from 2015 to this beginning of 2018 period of time, it went down. It didn't go down by a lot. It went down by a little bit. It was pretty much flat through that whole period of time. So if you're an equity investor during that period of time, where do you want to be? Well, Stan Drunkenmiller, I can tell you, I watched an interview with billionaire Stan Drunkenmiller back in 2015 timeframe. And he said, I just put on a massive position in Europe. 
And at the time, it didn't make complete sense to me why he was doing that. Today, as I'm looking at it in hindsight, it was brilliant positioning. And he was doing that because he was looking at how these central banks are supplying the liquidity that's causing the bid in all these assets. So heck yeah, he was right. Did he outperform everything else relatively speaking in the equity market? Of course he did. So using that same logic, which I think is still valid today because nothing has changed, and I look at where we would see similar performance due to just aggressive expansion of central bank's balance sheet in those countries relative to all the other countries in the world. In the US, it's insane. So just in 2020, we've gone from $4 trillion to $7 trillion just this year. We've almost done 100% expansion. When you look at the other central banks, they're also expanding, but they're not expanding nearly as aggressively. So they're up not even close to those numbers, say a quarter to 30 to 40% of the easing that you're seeing here in the US. So where do I think you're going to see the performance? In relative terms, if I'm comparing it to all these relative markets, I think you're going to see it in the US. I think the US is going to be the location that has the highest amount of manipulation and therefore the highest bidding relative to the other spots in the world. Now, this gets really complicated because we're talking about something that is nearly impossible to predict where they're going to ease the hardest next, right? Because this all comes down to policy. This all comes down to, well, which country is going to have to insert more liquidity and more fiat into their system. So from an investing standpoint, I think one of the most powerful ways to defend your treasury of work is how I look at it. Your treasury of work that you have saved, how do you protect that? I think the best way to protect it is through a momentum approach, momentum investing approach, where you're looking at the price and you're saying, all right, there's a statistical move based on previous volatility, and now I should be an owner, and now there's something that has broken the statistical volatility to the downside. I should sell it and protect my principal, right? This approach has worked very well for Stig and I in 2020. I would argue we missed a significant portion of the drop based on our TIP momentum tool that provided that for the S&P 500, for any other ETF. And then miraculously, the the tool also recommended a buy shortly after the drop because it saw a statistical change in the volatility coming back to the upside. Would I have thought that that would have happened based on the fundamentals? Heck no. (laughs) There's no way. But from a momentum standpoint, it's saying be in the game. So I think that moving forward, central banks are conducting aggressive quantitative easing. I think they're going to continue to do aggressive quantitative easing. Not only are they going to be doing quantitative easing, they're going to be doing universal basic income and they're going to be making payments to pretty much every American and also every other citizen's central bank in the world is doing the same thing. So where does that take the market? I have no idea because at the same time, my expectations for earnings are going to be atrocious relative to where they were before for a majority of the companies. The five companies that are driving the whole S&P 500, yeah, they're probably not included in that description. But for every other company in the world, yeah, they're losing business. So how do you navigate this? You, In my opinion, you navigate it through momentum investing. I don't know any other way to do it because this is defense, man. You are not on the offense here. You are playing defense. One final thought I have 
I believe that there is a gross misunderstanding for most market participants on something being up in nominal fiat terms versus something being up in buying power terms. Okay. So let me explain what I mean by that. So the stock market, if you went and asked a hundred people, is the stock market up this year? I think you'd probably have a hundred people tell you, yes, you might find some crazy weird ball like myself that would tell you it's down. (laughs) And so now let me explain what I mean by that. If I go and I measure the value of the S&P 500 in gold since the start of this year, the S&P 500 is down nearly 16%. If I measure the S&P 500 in Bitcoin, the S&P 500 is down negative 35% for this year. I think those trends are going to continue in the future. That's my expectation. And I know we're talking about international stocks here. So let me just tell you if I pull up any other ticker for this year, since the S&P 500 has outperformed internationally for 2020, those numbers for whatever country you want to pick is worse than negative 15% and worse than negative 35% for whatever country you want to throw at me, right? In gold or Bitcoin terms. That's what I mean when I say that there's a gross misunderstanding between something being up in nominal fiat terms versus something being up in buying power terms. I think very few people understand this. I I think most people are extremely skeptical of the idea that I'm talking about, and that's fine. I want people to be skeptical of that idea because that's the only way, if you do buy into that idea, you better have some conviction, (laughs) especially with the volatility on, on one of those two things. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want people to challenge the way they see the world. I want people to challenge their thinking and dig into this more. Dig into this idea of what is buying power? What does nominal prices mean versus buying power prices mean? I think it's probably one of the most important topics of 2020 for people participating in financial markets. I'm very old school. (laughs) As you know, I'm not too different in the way I look at valuations compared to whenever we started the podcast in 2014. And I know that you are in many ways, and I think it's great we have this discussion. It's probably also a lot more interesting than if we always agreed, because that's, <laughs> I guess that would be boring for people to listen to. I feel that it still comes down to valuation. I do think a lot of valuations have become harder because of the manipulation. But whereas, you know, I, and I'm just like throwing out some random numbers, say that, you know, 10 years ago, you could be trust evaluations, you know, explaining 80% of the future returns, it would now be less than that. I think you're right in that, you know, it's been distorted by that influx of fiat currencies and all that that's being printed. If I look at, should I buy an index Let's just look away from currency risk here for a moment in the sense that of exchange rate and who's printing more money. But let's say that I should just look at, you know, the Canadian stock index in the US. Like, would I buy the one that has the most attractive valuation or not? What do I expect would have the best performance? Everything else equal. Right now, that would be the Canadian. And so I'm not saying that you cannot or should not include all the other factors, which we also try to do here in the podcast. Now, I think there's a lot of good things to be said about using momentum in the way that you haven't or we haven't really been doing before and a lot of people have been doing before because of that. But for me, it still comes down to valuation as 
the one most fundamental factor in terms of determining that. Then you might have a point in the sense that, oh, but stick, the discussion is not about should I buy stock A or stock B or stock index A or stock index B. It might be should I buy another asset class. I think you have a point about that. To me, that's sort of like a different discussion. It's not a less valid discussion, but it's a different discussion to have. Whenever I'm looking at two stocks, I would be looking at the most attractive valuation. And then to the other thing that you mentioned about central banks, whenever we are throwing out, you know, later we're going to talk about Europe, we're talking about, hey, how many bonds are they going to buy back? The 750 billion euros that the ECB is buying back, it's not the same impact as the Fed. It's two different markets, two different impacts. So any thoughts on that, Preston? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business 
and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I think it's really important for me to say that for all the people listening and have learned value investing through some of Stig and I's conversations, maybe even the Buffett's books videos that I did years ago on YouTube. I believe in all of that stuff to my core. I would tell you that that's my foundational roots is in that stuff. We're in a very unique environment today. And this environment, and I think the better way for me to describe it is that stuff works. I have complete and utter faith in how value investing works. There's one key thing that value investing requires in order for it to work, and that's a sound currency. That is unshakable. If you have an unsound currency and you're trying to do valuations with a ruler that keeps moving around on you, I don't know that, and especially if you're just looking domestically and you're not looking internationally at all the things that are playing out, I think it gets very difficult to do effectively if you're talking about increasing your buying power. Does it mean it's obsolete? Of course not. I mean, when I look at TIP finance, I mean, the first thing I go to is the valuation page. The first thing I go to is which company is giving me the most earnings for the price that I'd pay on the market, right? That's the first thing I'm looking at. But I'm also looking at a lot of other factors and I'm pulling them all together. And I think that it's just important for people especially for young people that are in college right now that are learning about valuations, right? They're learning about discount cash flow models. They're learning about IRR calculations, all those things. Those are very important things. And there's going to be a day when the person who's really good at those things is going to be extremely lethal in the market. I'd tell you the last five years, they have not been extremely lethal. It's maybe much more momentum-based in order to have been a person who's really outperforming. But I think once we return to some type of sound money, and I have no idea the timeline of when something like that's going to play out, you better darn well believe Preston Pish is going to be the biggest value investor on the planet buying up the picks that are kicking off the biggest cash flows based on the price that I'm paying. But I really think that you have to have a sound money in place in order for that to be such a slam dunk, shooting fish in a barrel approach like it was for Warren Buffett for decades. And I think you're starting to see why it's, it isn't shooting fish in a barrel for Warren Buffett in the last 10 years. You know, at the end of the day, I think I'm just, I'm kind of a chameleon in, in the way that I approach investing. I, I'm trying to look at what works. I'm trying to look at all the external factors and I'm trying to adjust it. If I was on a sailboat, I'm adjusting the sail and I'm adjusting the rudder in order to navigate where I want to go. I guess that's all I'm trying to say. But anyway, Stig, let's transition. Let's talk about what's next on our agenda here. We've got European markets, monetary and fiscal policies. Let's do it. So I'm going to come up with a very old school way of valuing Europe right now. No, I'm just teasing Preston right now. (laughs) (laughs) So whenever I'm looking at European markets, and if we look at the major markets, you know, Germany, UK, and France, 
they haven't seen the same rebounds in the stock market index as, you know, say the S&P 500. And so whenever I saw that, to me, it was a sort of like a, a signal to perhaps I should see if there's still some value to be found in Europe. And then talking a bit more about what is happening over here. So let's talk about some of the somewhat comparable thing. You know, the ECB are growing their balance sheet too, like Preston mentioned before. What they're saying is that the program is vital to ensure that, especially Southern Europe has been hit the hardest by the pandemic won't see a surge in borrowing costs. And we're recording this the 3rd of June. There's going to be a new meeting tomorrow, June 4th. And there are rumors saying that they're probably going to expand that program. That is what the market expects. And you've seen that in the European markets here lately that that's been trying to factor in. And so I think what's interesting for American listeners to understand whenever they learn about Europe is that it's comparable and it's not whenever you look at some of those numbers. You know, one thing we talked about before is that the debt market in Europe is just not as deep as in the US. So it has a dollar or a euro for that matter would just have a different impact. But it's also because uh, fiscal policies, and whenever I say you know, fiscal policies, as opposed to monetary policies where you are more controlling the monetary supply, you know, fiscal policies, that's a different way of spending money, if you like. It might be government programs like unemployment programs or fiscal policies can also be taxes. So it's much more directed at the consumers than the financial markets. Now, in Europe, we don't have a central unit as you guys do in the US to determine the fiscal stimulus. We have that in the sense that we have a long-term EU budget, but in the States, you also have something that is state-based and something that's Fed-based, but it's structured very differently in Europe due to historical reasons because we are still very independent nations. And so what the EU has been trying to do, and this is not the Eurozone, but the EU, just to clarify that it's two very different things. Many of the countries are the same, but definitely not all of them, is that the German Chancellor Merkel and the French President Macron has proposed a 500 billion euro recovery package. And There are a few interesting things about that. The first one is that it's not a lot of money. And so what do I mean by that? 500 billion euros, that should be a lot of money. But it's not because fiscal policies are a lot more comparable between the US and Europe in the sense that it goes directly to the consumers. And so the depth of the market are not different. Actually, Europe and the US has a similar size economy. So it's a lot more comparable. 500 billion euros is not a lot whenever you compare to what has been happening in the US and how much it's been stimulated there. So that's one thing. The individual member states can still print, but it's a trickier situation because if you look at the EU as such, because we have the construction that we have, all 27 countries have to agree. I know this sounds ridiculous. You have something where the richer Northern European countries are supposed to pay for the poor Southern European countries. Whenever you have something when 27 countries have to agree, you're just bound to run into problems, which is also what you're seeing now. So right now, the Southern European countries are saying, hey guys, you have to help us. The Northern European countries who are typically wealthier are saying, we're not going to bail you out because this won't be a loan. This would be made as a grant. So it would be money raised all over Europe, but distributed to the poorer countries, which a lot of countries are against. And since you have 
to have 27 countries agree on this, it's just very difficult. So that just tells you something about the inefficiencies of the European markets. Now, what are the implications then for us investors? Like, how are we supposed to deal with those facts that I brought up before? Well, despite all of this, I would still say that if you're too exposed in the US, you might consider diversifying into Europe. It is everything else equal, trading at a much more attractive level. Southern Europe probably doesn't seem like the place you want to put your money. Some of that has already been priced in. But also, if you buy a European ETF, for instance, Vanguard's Europe ETF VGK, that's the ticker VGK, you would only be uh, 9% exposed to Spain, Italy, and Portugal. Like those financial markets are not as developed. So if you feel bad about investing in Europe because of what you're seeing there, typically they won't be too exposed to that. Now, I don't expect a double-digit return for Europe going into this or... If I do see a double-digit return for euro, it would be in very nominal numbers because of what we're seeing now. But I think the downside protection compared to other equities, for instance, emerging markets, are much higher, giving euros status as currency. And I think it's also a nice way of diversifying into another currency. If you are very concerned about the future of the US dollar, it might make sense for you to diversify into some of the other major currencies. So the other thing I wanted to say about Europe, not trying to sell investing in Europe too much here, but is that if you want to invest in Europe, you can clearly do that many different ways. The easiest way, the most transparent way, I would like to say also would probably be to buy something like a VJK, like a market-weighted index for Europe, which is trading at around a 6% expected return. The US is closer to, what, 3 or 4 I think the US is close to like three and a half. Another way you can invest in Europe, which is something I don't recommend, is that popular way very often suggested in the media is the index called Eurostox 50, which is a collection of the 50 biggest and most liquid stocks. And so just based on knowing that, it seems like, oh, why wouldn't I just invest in the biggest better these days? So it seems. Looking at the fan stocks, why wouldn't I do that with Europe? The index is still 4% down from the peak more than 20 years ago, which is interesting in itself. But I think it's also important to understand some of the component of the legal framework here in Europe. We are entering a world with more and more winner-takes-all technologies and industries. And Europe just doesn't have the same home field advantage as US companies. The reason why I say that is that European regulators are much happier than the US or, for that matter, Asian counterparts to start antitrust cases. And that just implies that it's much harder for European companies to compete with big tech in, say, your Tencent, Alibaba, Google, Apple. And so, which is just one of their multiple reasons why the Eurostox 50 haven't been performing that well, but it is very difficult to compete for European companies. You're just one example. Last week, I pitched Spotify. They've been suing Apple in Europe for discriminating them on the iOS platform. And Apple are using their monopoly power to do that. Now, the weird thing is that Android is actually much bigger than iOS here in Europe. So you would think that while they're specifically targeting Apple, that's because they can. (laughs) It's much more difficult for them to target the US. Like, they're not Apple. They don't have that monopoly power. So they're doing it in Europe because they can, not because that is what they want to do the most. So one thing is what the lack of antitrust means for us as consumers. 
But for investors, U.S. companies just have a leg up because if you have a legislation that allows you to have more monopoly power, that also allows you to have more profitability, which is essentially what you're going after being an investor. So that was some of the pros and cons of potentially diversifying away from the U.S. into Europe. All right. So for this being our 300th episode, we want to do something special. So we have a forum on our website. Anybody can participate on the forum if you want to ask questions about stock picks, if you want to talk about whatever. We're on there and we interact with the audience there. And what we want to do is for the top 10 people on our forum, and this is measured by the number of engagements they've had on the platform, those top 10 people, we're going to give you a lifetime subscription to TIP Finance. You're going to be able to use it into perpetuity. The TIP Finance has the momentum tool that we were talking about earlier on the show. It also does a stock filter where it looks at every single company on the US markets and it prioritizes them based on Warren Buffett type value filtering. And so we're just excited to be able to give this to everybody completely for free for their entire lifetimes. And if anyone else wants to check it out, go ahead and go to our website, or you can just go into Google and type TIP Finance and conduct a search. It'll be the first thing that pops up. Thank you to everybody in our audience. Thank you, thank you for listening to our show, to supporting us, for engaging with us online. We just feel so blessed. Stig and I, I mean, we just enjoy doing this. We would do this if no one was listening to us, to be quite honest with you. We just enjoy these conversations. I mean, that's the thing. If only people heard about what we rambled about of how the financial markets before we hit that record button. And can I say, Preston, it's especially fun here now that we're starting to look a bit differently at it. We came in in 2014 very much being like Warren Buffett being the Oracle. I think we still think he's, he's the Oracle, but like, I wouldn't say it was boring in a way because we sure had a lot of fun, but it was very much like we are, yeah, we got this. We read the gospel. This is the truth. It's obvious that we're learning right there with you. <laughs> I think that's probably the best way to put it is we're learning all this stuff right there with you. It's not that we have this knowledge or anything. I mean, when we interview the Jeff Booths of the world and when we read whatever book and we come on the show and we talk about it, we're right there with you learning this stuff. And I think the exciting part is I feel like there's still so much more to cover and so much more to learn on this topic. So I look forward to another 300. I'm just going to put it out there. Stig behind the scenes is the guy really running this thing. I mean, he is the guy that manages the day to day with the whole team. And I mean, he is one hell of a partner. That's all I can say. So thank you, Stig. You're definitely too kind. I'm desperately trying to come up with something other than thank you for telling me to buy Bitcoin. I really need to come up with something more, <laughs> more difficult than that, Preston. Because it shouldn't just all be dollars and cents. But I think I want to put it like this. It's fantastic to have a good job, but it's much better to have a good job whenever you're doing with people you admire, respect, and love. So let me, uh, let me round off the episode by saying that. And let's just forget the whole Bitcoin comment. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. All right, guys, that was all the press that I had for episode 300 of the Investors Podcast. We'll be back with episode 301 next week. Please stay safe. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. 
Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.